0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's always beyond reality. I'm your host, JV Johnson. Thanks for being here. It's great to have everybody along tonight. We have um, a a lot to talk about with returning guest Varla Ventura. I'm excited about this program because uh, she's a lot of fun. She's written some really cool stuff. And we're going to be talking about the spiritualist movement. We're also going to be talking about some of her books about the paranormal and uh, fairies and changelings. She's written a lot of great stuff. We're going to talk about it all tonight here with Varla. So we'll bring her in just a few moments. But I mentioned panic. I, you know... I opened up the program the last few days, and I keep saying, I don't know what to think about what's happening, but things are continuing to spiral. It reminds me of one of those movies, you know, 28 Days Later, or whatever those films are that have, you uh, know, they they start, uh, Outbreak, I guess, is one. You know, this whole you know, a couple people have something, and it spreads like crazy, and everybody's panicking, and, and I'm not even sure what to think about any of this. I mean, it was just announced that Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson have tested positive for the Wuhan virus. And they're in Australia working on a film, and they started to feel uh, you know a little tired and a little achy, maybe a little fever here and there. I don't want to under uh, estimate any of this, but they don't seem to be complaining that they're feeling that horribly. And a lot of people that have these symptoms, I've seen a few interviews with people who have the coronavirus. They don't seem to have um, symptoms that are too severe. Now, of course, there are people dying from this. I'm not trying to minimize it at all. But it seems like most of the population, it's just uh, it's kind of a, you know, a flu-like thing. So I, I don't know what to think about it, but things are changing rapidly. Every time you turn on the news, you're seeing a whole new paradigm. The president just announced that he is suspending all travel from Europe for 30 days. Now, as you know, if you listen to the show, I was supposed to go to Germany on the 23rd of this month. And I was going to be well, I was flying into Amsterdam in the Netherlands. My son is there. He just finished grad school. And it sounds like he won't be able to get home he was going to come back with me on the 2nd of April. Now, I canceled my plans because I was afraid that I would get stuck. He's a student. He just graduated school. If he gets stuck for three weeks in a quarantine, it's not going to really upset his lifestyle much. But would It would be very, very difficult for me to handle that. So the bottom line here is that no one can travel here from Europe for 30 days starting Friday at midnight. So I'm now frantically trying to see if I can get him home early. So I don't know how that's going to end up. And his visa, he's got a visa. He's got a student visa. That expires before the end of that third day. So what happens in that case? I'm not sure. Uh, The NBA just announced that they're suspending the season. I mean, you know, you've got got the uh, NCAA now saying they're going to hold March Madness tournament without audiences. Talk about taking the funny out of the room. All of the energy of those games comes from the from the crowd, the fans. How can you play those games without that fan energy? And when I say energy, I don't so mean noise. I mean, it affects the players. That is a very, very difficult situation. And now the NBA recognizes that, first of all, if they were to try to do that, I mean, all their revenue, well, not all of it, but much of their revenue comes from having fans attend the games. So they can't do that. So they're going to suspend their season. One of the players on, was it the, I don't know, one of the teams, Uh, just uh, um, uh, preliminarily tested positive for the coronavirus. Germany is saying they expect 70% of their population to get infected by this. I was having a conversation earlier with somebody, and, you know, of course, everybody, the first thing they say is, well, everybody's just panicking, things are out of control. But the bottom line here is the officials... All over the world that are saying, don't panic, everything's going to be fine. Those words don't match their actions. Are they not telling us something here? And the only reason I bring this up is because we're going to be talking about it next week with with an expert. But um, And we do talk about conspiracies. But I just want to plant a seed. If this was, in fact, some type of biological weapon gone awry, escaping from a lab... If that's really what happened, and the governments knew that, they they might also know that it was designed in a way that could mutate quickly, could change, could become much more deadly, or maybe it was designed to be more deadly than it is right now, so therefore the potential for it to become more deadly is there. Um, then they that might explain this behavior. It might explain it very, very well, in fact. So... I'm not I'm not saying I believe that uh, I don't need to be uh, called names and get hate email but I'm just saying think about that for a second and and uh and, and make sure you ask the right questions that's what we want to do here we want to ask the right questions and the truth is the truth and we'll figure out what that is at some point I suppose but if you don't ask the right questions you'll never get to the truth so I don't know. Keep that in mind. But whatever you do, please be safe. And again, so much of this is, uh, has to do with washing your hands and, and good hygiene and staying away from people that are sick. And if you're sick yourself, you don't feel well. Stay away from other people. Stay home. Take care of yourself. Consider it a, uh, a well-deserved rest, if nothing else. So I don't know. Um, we'll keep tabs on it for you, of course, here on the program, and we will get as many experts as we can but in the meantime keep uh, pay attention to the news because this is a very very rapidly changing situation i mean i did not expect a 30 day ban of travel from europe i did not expect that at all i thought maybe there would be some quarantines and stuff some some pockets but of course but what they're saying now is that because because europe did not institute the bans from china as we did here in the united states Many people traveled from China to Europe, spread it throughout Europe, and those pe- and then people were coming from Europe to here, spreading it here. So that's not the topic of tonight's conversation. The topic of tonight's conversation will be spiritualist movement. We're going to talk about the Fox sisters. We're going to talk about a lot more with our guest, Varla Ventura. I'm excited to have her back on the program. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in again. Varla Ventura is our guest tonight. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Please support the program go to patreon.com/johaw that's j o h a w Varla is the author of Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghosts, Seances, and True, True, uh, Tales of True Hauntings, along with uh, books called Fairies, Pookas, and Changelings, A Complete Guide to the Wild and Wicked Enchanted Realm, and several other books on folklore, vampires, banshees, ghosts, and mermaids. A lot of great stuff there, Varla. Welcome back to the program. Great to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: All right, so I, I have to get the 800-pound the gorilla out of the way here. Uh, where are you in the country, and are you dealing with this virus stuff or not? Oh,
1: I thought you were going to ask me if I was related to Jesse Ventura. That's usually how these conversations
0: start. Well, you know, you know, you know uh, the I, way my mind works? I was actually going to, and this is true, I was actually going to ask you if you're related to Robin Ventura, who is a baseball player, because I'm in Cooperstown, New York. I think baseball a lot.
1: Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm not related to either of them, <laughs> and I I am a California. I call myself a Calisotan now. I I grew up in California um, in the San Francisco Bay Area and lived there until about six or seven years ago when I sort of randomly relocated to um, kind of the northern part of Minnesota outside the Twin Cities. So yep. that's where I am. We are relatively. Um, uh it's relatively mild here. I mean we're not on a coast, so that's one of the main reasons. There haven't been too many restrictions with the with the virus as of yet. Um, and I haven't heard uh too many uh horror stories or anything like that yet. But the town that my where my parents live in California and um where a lot of my family they've had actually they they've had a quite quite a hard time there so i'm not um you know personally affected by it in in terms of physical space yet um you know it's just it's it's creeping it's i you know every other every other headline you think am i in a science fiction yeah novel right now am right. i a character in a novel what is what you know what are the long term repercussions and so i'm i'm one of those people that has a very you know, active imagination and it can go all kinds of places. And I see plot lines in everything. It's part of being a writer, but I'm also a pretty relaxed person. So I try not to freak out about things or stockpile or, you know, bury a bunch of stuff in my backyard or anything like that. Um, I do try and kind of maintain some semblance of a, of a, you know, attempt toward the greater good and making sure that people who are safe have what they need. Um, but so far, we haven't had too much now. I know, you know, a lot of um, my nieces and nephews are, you know, homeschooling, not going into class. My nephew's doing college classes from remote, yeah. which is, um, you know, that's just all kind of precautionary measures where they live. Um, but yeah, there's been a... I've had a couple um, trips kind of waylaid and things like that. Um, it's It's pretty... Pretty
0: crazy. Yeah, I just writing kind of um, it
1: out here. I had
0: a, <laughs> I had a, a trip to Germany. Actually, was I was going to Holland to pick up my son, and we were going to travel through Germany a little bit and then fly home. He just finished grad school there, and um, I canceled the trip uh, two days ago or yesterday. I don't know what it was. A couple days ago, anyway. Because I was just afraid I'd get there and get stuck. And sure enough, uh, I'm sure you're aware it was just announced that travel from Europe will be suspended for 30 days starting on Friday, Friday the 13th. Now, my son is going to be stuck. (laughs) He won't be able to come home now, which is a bit of a drag and a concern at the same time. Do you just, uh, you know, neither of us are scientists here. We're only speaking anecdotally. But what's your your thought? Do you think this is uh, irrational panic or do you think maybe there's more to this than we're even being told because somewhere the, the actions aren't matching up with the words in my estimation.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, side note, I initially had a trip planned to Scotland um, next month. So it probably would have fallen under the not able to go time because I think we would have been leaving right around the, the 14th or so. Um, but we postponed that trip for uh, other reasons uh, a few months ago. I was, I'm, I'm going with my uh, my my friends. We've been friends since high school. We're, we've been friends for, like, you know, 30 years, and we've never done any kind of traveling extensively together. So we have this big trip planned. And we just decided to postpone it to the fall for a variety of reasons, mostly our own schedules um and also because we want to be in scotland in october because that sounds wonderful
0: it sure does yeah um
1: so um i you know i mean i guess um, for a um for being such a, a freak i actually have a pretty level head about some things and with this i do feel that a lot of what we're um it's. I don't think that we need to be paranoid and stockpiling. I think what we're attempting to do, and maybe need to pay more attention to, is the fact that you know it's it's really kind of comes down to like can our healthcare system handle that many sick people? And I don't want to um, contribute to a situation in which someone has to choose who they're going to. Um, treat because yeah. there's not enough room for everyone and I have you know my parents are older my father has some pre-existing conditions so I'm not worried about my own health and I'm not particularly worried about the health of my son um, it's not affecting children right. the way it's affecting other, but I it's the ripple effect in like where your contribution is in in, um, in society I, but you know you go you, you log on you go online there are all these different there's a lot of media outlets who are using scare tactics um, in their headlines, and there are some that are being very responsible. Um, there's conspiracy theories like there is with everything, and, um, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt, but there's also some tr- – unfortunately, the truth gets so jumbled. Um, but I definitely – I mean, I, I think it's serious, I and mean, people are are getting – it it's serious because it it does spread so fast. So uh, you know, but I have to say like I'm I'm a I'm a a writer. I call myself an an introverted extrovert. I have no problem with <laughs> give me some wine and a quarantine and I'll probably <laughs> produce a novel. But uh you know, making light of a situation I know it's not it's not funny right, for people right. who have been stuck. Of course. But um it's definitely yeah, I it's like I said, it's not affecting me as directly as it is other people in the country, but I do think of, you know, what, what, what would happen if I got on a plane to go see my parents and I just happened to be sitting next to someone who didn't realize they were sick and now I've brought this virus into a household where, you know, someone with a pre-existing lung condition lives so you know those are the kinds of things i think like is it should i should i post you know the wedding coming up should i post when going to that wedding not for my own sake you know because i think i'll be fine it's the it's the you know do i want to be responsible for spreading it in you any know. way so no. i don't know it's uh, i know time. It's, right? it, you know, is we've th- lived through things like this before but we didn't always have the um, saturation of media. So w- what I'm hoping is we can use it for, you know, the good, for education, not for scaring everybody into buying out all the toilet paper.
0: <laughs> toilet paper is going to be more valuable What's than wrong, you know? gold. Wrong, Come on. Start investing everybody-
1: in toilet Everybody toilet, p- gets a little. Okay? Yeah, toilet paper
0: futures are going to sky are skyrocketing. Um, so <laughs> invest in it. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Minneapolis Twin Cities—that's a beautiful area. I really like Minneapolis a lot. But let's talk about how you got involved. You, you know, you've written, as I kind of said in the beginning here, you've written about things from ghosts to uh, fairies, changelings, vampires, banshees. I mean, you've looked at it all, and you you take a lot of pride. in, in discussing the fact that you are attracted to and really find fascinating things that are strange or bizarre, where did this enter your life? At what point? And uh, do you have an explanation for it? I mean, there are there are <laughs> there are many of us who fi- feel the same way, um, and mm-hmm. but some some of us can point our finger to something in our lives that made that happen. Others can't. Uh, where did it happen for you? Well, I
1: I probably ultimately blame. My mother, Um, you know, she's a good person to point the finger at, and I think she'd probably be flattered um, to hear me say that. My mother was never a conventional, is, is not a conventional thinker, has never been a conventional thinker, has always had a very strong interest in the occult, in metaphysics. And, um, you know, she grew up in San Francisco in the 60s, but she was very young when she had my older siblings. So she spent a lot of time kind of on that periphery of the sort of, like, hippie age of Aquarius, but never really could just immerse herself in that culture because she had three kids that she had to take care of. And so she spent, you know, that was an era in which astrology and tarot was you know, really kind of taking hold. There were paperbacks of, you know, Sybil Leak's Diary of a Witch and things like that. Right. And so out of that, that collection and that attitude, I mean, those were the books that were around me. Um, you know, one of one of uh, a really wonderful painter and friend of mine, uh, Benjamin Veerling, grew up, his mother, Genevieve Vierling, is a, is a pretty well-known and very... Um, Um, very talented astrologer, and he is one of the only people that I've had extensive conversations with where we were raised with kind of a similar mindset in terms of the world around us. And um, there's, you know, just this kind of general attraction. I wouldn't say it's necessarily to all things dark, but there's so much beauty in this kind of hidden side. And so I grew up with you know, on my mom's shelf, you'll find Aleister Crowley, How to Learn the Tarot, plenty of civil leak, a lot of things, you know, texts about astral projection. And as I kind of became a older, you know, an older teenager and a young woman, and I found my own interest in these things and was kind of, you know, finding the tarot deck that I like to use and all these kind of things, I actually was able to really, one way that I was always able to connect with my mom, you know, you haven't always gotten along like, um, you know, as all mother daughters are, but we have always had this ongoing kind of spiritual dialogue about what these things mean and and the the bigger picture. And of course she's got 40 years on me, or excuse me, mom, 30 years on me. So, (laughs) you know, there's, there's all these different methods. And then it was never with this seriousness in which, you know, this was how you're going to make your living or this is how you're going to make money. It was always not exactly parlor games, but basically, you know, parlor games. Like, you know, to this day, most people call their parents up and ask for advice. And my mom says, throw the I Ching, throw the I Ching. It'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the background that I grew up in and, in, in, um, you know, the a pretty isolated community in rural Northern California with, um, you know, kind of just, uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, art and mediumship in that area. So it was a very basic, like, um, you know, backdrop for me spending, we would go through cemeteries and talk about history and there, was, there were things that I spent a lot of time doing as a child that I never, you know, like you never think that it's abnormal until you kind of go out in the world and you realize that not everybody did that growing up. Not everybody picnicked in the cemetery with their entire, um, you know, with their sisters and their mom, and um, not everybody celebrated Halloween to the extent that we celebrated it. And I learned so much at a young age that just really influenced my interest in horror, the occult, um, magical creatures, um, mythology, all of those things. I was surrounded. It's, It's as if you know, if I if I went to church, perhaps I would have been interested in the Bible. But um, we never went to church.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How about um, uh, pop culture? Did any of that influence you? You know, I was a big horror movie fan as a kid. I also loved television shows like In Search Of or some of these others that explored some alternative ideas. Did did any of that grab you as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. So when I was a kid, I used to spend my summers with my grandparents in in San Francisco and in their basement were always the like previous summers reads from the older cousins and siblings. And so there was always like a lot of fate magazine and Ripley's believe it or not. And things like that, along with, you know, various comics. So I read a lot of books like that as a kid and then always loved. And then of course, you know, one, one summer, I was probably 10, and someone left behind Skeleton Crew. Uh, My older sister, Debbie, I think she left behind Skeleton Crew. I was like, okay, I'm going to read Stephen King. And this was, you know, uh, I wasn't young enough to understand everything that was going on in, in the stories, but, man, were they scary. And I found that I liked that feeling. I liked the feeling of being scared. I liked horror movies. Um, pop culture wise, of course, I loved a lot of, you know, some of the classics, like fell in love with Bella Lugosi at a young age and loved Boris Karloff, and he's one of my all time favorites. And then, as you know, in the 80s, we had Witches of Eastwick and, and Ghostbusters and movies like that that kind of made um, paranormal fun <laughs> in right. its own way. So definitely a lot of influences the uh, yeah, Adam's family and how it kind of is many in incantations from the comic strip to the move to the show to the movies that came out later. So um, you know, and then all the wonderful Tim Burton things that were happening in the nineties when I was, you know, hunched over a drawing board and um drinking too much. So lots of fun. <laughs> fun pop culture. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you've um, you've written, as I said, about a, many different topics, uh, and in fact, and some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight include cryptids and ghosts and and some of these uh, what we would call um, I don't know if we call them creatures or not, but you know fairies and the like. Of all those topics and all those things you've looked at and written about, uh, is there any one of those topics that you prefer to spend most of your time exploring the most? Oh gosh, well.
1: And um, they all, it, they certainly all reflect different aspects of my moods. So, you know, so maybe in the summer I want to read a new, read about a new crazy um, sea creature and sea serpent and go kind of like the mermaid route. Um, I definitely love magical creatures and folklore in general. I love what folklore uh, tells us about a, a culture or a time in history. Um, I love what folklore tells us about ourselves and how we treat others and how we look at the world. Um, So that's something that I absolutely, you know, I can always kind of revisit. Um, Magical creatures, in general, as an umbrella term, you will never know everything because they're magical. (laughs) And it's folklore, and there's always a new interpretation. There's always a discovery there's always the original story, which is masked beneath, you know, the Victorian retelling. And then there's yeah, folk like, like any good story, any good horror story, anything like that. Um, you know, the art of storytelling is important and it's, it's, it's the person's interpretation as well. And so everybody remembers different things about stories. So for me, when I'm, rereading or retelling a you know a folk tale or an early horror or um, you know a cult work of occult fiction or something that always makes me really excited. And then I would say, you know, probably a topic that I'm most passionate about, at least currently, you know, with the last book that I wrote, I kind of had a section about Um, women in the spiritualist movement and what the spiritualist movement was and what that meant to women uh, in terms of breaking out from the confines of society and the psychic arts in general. That, I feel like, is kind of a a book in and of itself, and I'm sort of forever discovering a new character in in those regards. So, again, it kind of just depends on, on my mood. If I had to pick one creature of all the creatures that I've ever written about and all the people and all the, like, you know, amazing um, characters, I would probably pick Banshees above all else. Oh, wow. I find Banshees incredibly fascinating and terrifying and sad and, uh, uh, you know, undeniably attractive. So um, I feel like there's a lot happening with Banshees. They have a, a role in death. They have a role in um, story. So they're very m- mystical and um somewhat misunderstood creatures.
0: In your books, as you uh, write about any or all of these creatures, do you write about them from a perspective of a believer, of a skeptic, or, or a storyteller, or all of the above?
1: <laughs> well, I call myself a supernaturalist, so that's my that's my religion, um, and a folklorist. I, I think... When it comes to sort of paranormal stories and people sharing their experiences with me, um, you know, I certainly don't just include everything. If I'm including it in a book, I'm usually pretty thoughtful about it. As you well know, there people run the gamut, um, and sometimes people's traumatic experiences can um, take the form of something that can be perceived as paranormal but perhaps isn't. Um, so I do have a little bit of a skepticism in there when I am kind of sifting through things. But, um, yeah, it's probably more of an all of the above. I mean, I certainly, I certainly lean on the side of believer because I've had things happen to me and I've had experiences. So I have to kind of come at it from the believer's point of view. That being said, I don't believe everything, um, and I don't think any of us really do. But, um, you know, when you do it long enough and you talk to enough people, it's hard to—you can't dismiss everything. And so when you you really kind of start digging into it, but also from the sort of— um storytelling and sort of writer's point of view, I really think there's something amazing that happens when you are in a story and when you are learning about this kind of other world or this creature or you're, you know, sitting next to someone being terrified as this story is being retold. Um, You know, it has, it does something to your, I mean, it might make your heart rate go up but it also kind of suspends you in time, and it kind of it can change your relationship with time because you can be completely lost in a story. It can suspend doubt because you're in that moment. At the end of the story, you might say, "Oh no, that never happened." But in that moment, when you're, it's a really good story, you're hanging on to it, and. Everything else kind of falls away. You know, it's like listening to something while you're doing the dishes is like always really enjoyable, right? Because otherwise, just do it, you're just doing the dishes. So the mundane world can kind of fall away. And I think that storytellers and writers have this um, that's part of what our obligation is, is to help people uh, escape. But by doing so, you are also helping people suspend doubt. And when you suspend doubt, that's when, you know, amazing things are invented and the creative process really takes off or, you know, people can think, oh, well, what if? And that can sometimes be enough to get to the place where what if could be something, it could be a cure or it could be a new story idea or it could be a beautiful painting or it could be the way that you treat another person. Um, We retell and hear stories for that reason. So that's... um, that's also very important to me. So sometimes it's not whether or not this creature is real and it actually poked you in the night. It's what did you feel when you were hearing that story and why is that story significant to you?
0: You um, have written a lot about the paranormal, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your Paranormal paranormal Parlor books. Uh, but have you personally had a paranormal experience? You spend a lot of time in cemeteries and hanging around creepy places. Anything paranormal <laughs> yes. happened to you?
1: Yes, I've never had a paranormal experience in a cemetery um that uh really kind of I mean I I probably had a couple of like little things. Uh, I know I I napped one time in the cemetery and had a very bizarre dream, but by and large none of my paranormal experiences took place during my um my romping about the graves. Um I did have a um, it actually started at a very young age. I've had numerous experiences. Um, my sister and I actually ha- started playing the Ouija board together quite young and we made contact with um a spirit of a little girl who had been buried on the property next to my parents in oh, wow. a lone grave. Yeah, and then my mom took the Ouija board away because she asked us who we were talking to and when we said it was the name of this little girl and she knew about this grave because, you know, it was kinda like you went on this walk in the woods and there was this lone, solitary grave, which turns out is historically very unusual. It was a beautiful marble grave. There were no other grave sites around, and it was for a little, like, seven-year-old girl. So whoever lived there, you know, they must have lived there long enough to, and had enough money to import this marble stone that then, you know, later kind of was overgrown, um, my mom took it away because she said she wasn't convinced that that's who we were talking to, and we've heard that before with Weechaboard. So, well, well, you so to she t- she
0: took it away, Varla, because she was concerned that there may have been something um, more sinister posing as this girl.
1: Yes, she yeah. walked into the room, said, "Girls, who are you talking to?" We told her this girl's name, and she promptly walked over the board up you know parker brothers ouija board slammed it shut i still remember the sound of the plastic planchet kind of wow. clapping inside of it put it under her arm and marched off with it with it you know to our cries of protest and it wasn't until much much later actually probably last year that my mom and i were talking about this again and she said i think i remember what i did with it because i said did you burn it what'd you do with it and she said, and what she and I asked her about it after she took it away. I said, Mom, why did you do that? And she said, you don't know what you're talking to. Oh, you, could, you could have opened a door, and there's no way to know that it was really that little girl. So that was her concern. I don't think she thought we were going to make contact with anything. Um, so anyway, she later said that she remembered she, had, she didn't throw it away. <laughs> Um she ever ever the um the saver, my mom actually used it under her computer and used it as a mouse, Like a a keyboard place for her mouth. So uh-huh. yeah, a lot of, a lot, I don't think she still has it. But. A
0: lot a lot of people have that fear when it comes to Ouija boards is that <laughs> idea yeah. idea that something could be misrepresenting itself as a way to have access. And I, I hear that in all you know, in all uh corners when we talk about Ouija boards, that that's that's a real fear. Yeah
1: um it definitely
0: yeah do yeah. You, do you think the paranormal has moved more mainstream in recent years
1: uh yes i mean i I think that it's probably gotten a little um i think it had a, another boom, i would say like probably in the like the the early 2000s to maybe 2015 or so, it had really kind of another resurgence in terms of popular media and television and also general interest. I think there were a lot more books you know, uh, about haunted places. And, and Now, we know, those of us who love these things, know that these types of things have endured, that, you know, these kinds of books have been out. And I'm I'm one of those people that, all you know, haunted anything. I'll buy it. I'll read it. Um, and I love it because it, it tells you something about history as well. It does seem like it kind of had a, a, a good sort of resurgence. And then it does, it, I feel like it's tapered off a little in terms of kind of, really, really constant popularity. But I also think there's a certain level of acceptance and kind of understanding. So I, I do think that I'm sure you have experienced this yourself, where you are you t- telling a story and it's somebody you would never think ha- has anything to do with the paranormal. And the next thing you know, they're telling you about, like, all of these things that, that they went through. And... Um, they're interested in this topic. And I think it's pretty common for us all to have had some kind of experience that makes us go, huh, and some of us have had more experiences than others, and some of us seek those experiences out. So it's probably, I think, in terms of, like, general popularity, it may not be as popular as it was 10 years ago, but these kinds of things go in cycles. You know, we'll have another sort of obsession with vampires again and and um Uh, Things like
0: that. Thank you for being with us tonight. Our guest tonight, Varla Ventura. We're talking about several of her books. Her website is her name, varlaventura.net. You know, there's, there's something that I envy about you and people like you, Varla, is you have a website that is your name. (laughs) <laughs> I really envy that. <laughs> Do you realize that my name, Jv Johnson, first of all, it's so popular, but my sister owns JVJohnson.com dot com, and I can't get it from her. <laughs> She's holding it for ransom can't or get something. Get her to give it up. No. Well,
1: at one point, I had um, Varlaventura.com dot com, and I I let it laugh and. Um, you know, By the time I went to renew it, somebody had purchased it and tried to sell it back to me yep. for like $6,000 right. or something. Yes. So we went with .NET. Yeah. <laughs> and I recently just had a... Um, my brother-in-law actually just did a wonderful... Uh, he just overhauled my entire website, and it just looks so much better, and it's a lot easier to navigate, and much more mobile-friendly. So
0: Yeah, it's a great site, by the way. I want to talk about your book... Uh, Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghosts, Seances, and Tales of True Hauntings. What's this book about?
1: So the Paranormal Parlor is sort of something we've touched on a little bit here, and it's the idea that um, sort of inspired by that Victorian-era seance where you sat around in somebody's very fancy parlor and you... Um, conducted a seance, or you sat around and did the Ouija board. And the idea is sort of that making the paranormal and the something, you know, the abnormal uh, actually very, very commonplace. And so with the book, I sort of invite people into my own parlor, and it actually covers everything from great places to you know, try and see ghosts yourself, haunted cemeteries and, um, you know, institutions and things along along those lines, but also um, first-hand accounts and uh, as well as second-hand account stories that were told to me by people that I've worked with and been on their shows over the years and um, my own experiences. And actually, Believe it or not, here I am writing all of these books, and I've had a number of experiences but i I didn't always really talk about my own my own experiences and so this was a little bit of a departure for me in this book because i I didn't even mean to, but as I would get a story from someone else, um originally, I was going to put like all of the stories from the people I had interviewed in one chapter. And instead, they seemed to fit in with other topics. Um, you know, children, you know, ghosts of children and playful ghosts. And then somebody told a story about a haunted tarot deck. And that fit in with this other story I was um, kind of putting in. So it's sort of everything from... Under the umbrella of sort of that paranormal parlor and talking about, as we mentioned, the spiritualist movement and some key players there, as well as um, my own experiences, experiences that people have told me that have really scared me and are really good stories, uh, along with just, you know, some other kind of like paranormal uh, dabblings. And then we finish up the book with some sort of uh, death rituals and and, um, interesting funereal um
0: practices. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> <Throwing that in. laughs> yeah, not not to put you on the spot though, but can you share one of the stories that uh you are most I don't know, satisfied terrified with. That? Yeah, or terrified yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. That you put I'd in that you put in the book. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, uh, well, there's there's many that I'm proud of. I have some really wonderful contributors. But the story that is the scariest and probably my favorite in the book is a story that was told to me by a very dear friend of mine, and it was first re- it was first told to me um, on the property in which it took place. and essentially this this friend of mine had bought this piece of property. And was building was was planning on building a house, but at the time, all that was on the house was sort of like a like a pump house. So there was the well, there was a little kind of shelter near it. And he had been staying on the property um for periods of time, and he was kind of clearing the brush. And this is in my in in my hometown, in my home county. And he also grew up there and has spent his entire life there. He's an archaeologist and a scientist. And so he knows a lot about the history and the folklore. And um, so he's clearing the brush one night. And again, just to paint the picture, it's dark out. We're visiting. So, um, you know, at this point, I think when the house had been, the main structure of the house had been built. So he and his wife were staying in the house on light like, cots and then I was going to go stay in this little cabin that he had been staying in and so he tells me the story he you had know, six months pre prior and it's dark out we've got a fire going but it's one of those areas where there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of light pollution and so he tells me that he's you know he's been working all day clearing brush and then he goes to kind of you know chill out in the in the little casa he has there and he's getting ready for bed, and he hears this um, noise that is like this, and is very guttural moaning. Very, very guttural very reverberating, and sort of kind of, you could sort of feel it, and he's a little bit on the top of the mountain, and there's a, a bit of a, a valley below him. And so his first thought is, is it is it an animal? Is it, you know, like a, a donkey having a baby or something kind of insane like that that would create this this horrifying noise that he had never heard before? Again, he'd lived his whole life there. So what what is the sound that was so foreign? And as he's listening, he he's trying to figure out what on earth it is, and it stops. And when it stops, it's completely truncated. There's no reverb. There's no echo. It just stops. So he's like, "Okay, that was that was that was rather strange." And um, then just a few minutes later, it actually starts again, and this time it's closer. Mm. And the sound is a little closer. It seems to be moving at the canyon, and now there's. Uh, Things on the windowsill that are rattling from the reverberation of this whatever it is moaning so low and sort of coming up the mountain toward him, and uh, it stops again. And then the third time, and he, uh, the first time he opens the door, to what is this? Right. The second time, he's a little more hesitant. Third time, I, he, he just goes back in, shuts the door, and waits for it to pass. It comes very close to the house. He can hear as if something is crashing in the, the oaks nearby, but he can't figure out what it is. So... And, and, and this is a person who is not easily scared, another lover of the horror and the strange and has had many, many paranormal experiences in his life. So He's one of my favorite storytellers. I'm always saying, remember, remember that like shadow man that you had when you were a kid that followed you around? Tell me that story again, because <laughs> it'll really scare me. What is more scary than somebody that you think of as brave actually being scared? Then you get scared, right? Like, oh, no. And then, of course, telling the story, and then I got to go stay in this little casa, you know, waiting for this thing that moans in the woods to make its way up the up the hill. So never really found out what it was, but he did talk with a neighbor, and the neighbor had also reported hearing a similar sound that ended with a splash in his pond. They mm. were never able to completely figure out what it was, but it was definitely something abnormal. It was it was something paranormal. It was something that was not didn't fit in with any of the categories. And the sound, the fact that the sound went from being all-encompassing to sort of um, then being completely truncated, to me, that was very unusual because most animal sounds would reverberate and you would hear some kind of echo. So we have speculated on it being some kind of Yeti-like creature. Um, I actually was working on the Banshee book when this happened, and so, I wondered if it was some sort of banshee or you know warning spirit, and then we tried to piece together what had happened after that in terms of you know a loved one die or anything like that, but it kind of remains a a bit of a mystery wow, that's one of my favorites, yeah, <laughs> you know I, and it's even scarier when you read it because <laughs> there's a lot of details that I'm you know glossing over that that make it even
0: scarier yeah the um the, the the idea of hearing a foreign noise like that as it and, and and it gets closer uh to you that is that is quite frightening and quite disturbing so I, I certainly can imagine and i put myself into his shoes as that was occurring in real time and that's got to be an experience that you don't um you don't uh, forget very quickly
1: and the poor man i've made him tell me that story so many times <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, did you leave? Let's see if you left out any details, if there's anything more. And then he um, retold it to me, and we put it in the book, because it just was, it really stood out above all other stories that I had um, heard from people, especially in that area. And um, he did find a little bit of literature later on that um, he's going to send me that had some uh, information about the indigenous People in the area and a certain sort of tall creature that lived there. So it had a little bit of a uh, um, wendigo Mm -hmm. vibe. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the wendigo? Yeah, I have. Incredibly terrifying thing. So it had a little bit of a wendigo vibe in this early account. So I'm not sure. You know, it kind of remains. Probably will always be a mystery. But every time I visit. I'm a little like, oh, this is great. Yeah, we're hanging outside. Like, yeah, it's getting dark. Let's go. Like, <laughs> just a little bit. And they were you're just waiting for something to, to come back.
0: You you um, have written a couple books about the bizarre. One of them is called The Book of the Bizarre. What, when you write about, quote, unquote, the bizarre, what are we talking about?
1: Oh, those books are wonderful collections of, the. I mean, they are basically your, you know, 12-year-old ideal. They are a combination of Ripley's, believe it or not, completely freaky facts coincidences and um with some hauntings and paranormal spots sort of thrown in there and they are collections of trivia so they are meant to be read in snippets um they can be read, you know, cover to cover because the chapters are arranged in a certain way. But they also can be read completely out of turn. We've got a little bit of everything. And so, if you if you look at maybe like the Book of the Bazaar and you compare it to Paranormal Parlor as like Paranormal Parlor is the grown up version, and um, the Book of the Bazaar is the fun, you know, pull it out at a party and freak people out with your vast knowledge of weird laws. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We, um, we're going to go to break here in just a little bit, and when we come back, I want to start talking about the spiritualist movement because it's a fascinating time in our history, and it relates to so many things that we talk about today and many of those things we take for granted. But one of the other books I want to mention, uh, because we talked about it I think when you were on the program last time, is your book, Fairies, Pukas, and Changelings. This is about some pretty unique and interesting creatures. Yeah, well, it,
1: when we think of fairies, I think a lot of us automatically think of something very, like, delightful that Disney-like, helps your yeah. garden grow. Disney-like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is not the case at all. The kingdom of the fairy is uh, encompasses many creatures, from trolls to banshees to, um, you know, things that are mischievous, things that aren't helpful. There are many, there's kind of a wide range. you got your domestic fairies, you've got your... Um, woodland fairies, your water spirits, and some of them are incredibly helpful and beneficial to have around. Some of them will torment you in the night, um, much like a poltergeist. So there's a a big range, and you can view the underworld or the fairy kingdom as this delightful place, but it's also a place that really messes with your relationship with time, And so you can enter an an area like that and be gone for what seems like minutes or hours, and you'll return to the mortal world and have lost 10, 20 years, maybe longer off your life. So fairies in general really play with our idea of time and our relationship with kind of the universe, parallel universes, um, how we treat uh, things we don't understand. And that's something I really love about looking at the folklore um, and all of the amazing and terrifying stories and sometimes really funny stories about things like a puka that will take you on you know, a wild ride at night because you turned down the wrong lane, um, something like a banshee that will appear at your door seemingly like a harmless old woman that then transfigures into something absolutely terrifying that's screaming at the top of its lungs as if someone is dying, and in fact, someone usually is. These are all parts of the fairy kingdom, so, you know, no offense Tinkerbell, but (laughs) there's uh, definitely a darker side to the fairy realm, and uh, I, I, I have always loved that. Anyone who's a fan of even the Grimm's or the Anderson fairy tales can attest to some of the um, mischievous and um, sometimes brutal um, aspects to the, the fairy kingdom and, and some of the creatures therein.
0: What are changelings exactly?
1: Oh, changelings are extra terrifying. Changelings are the fairy switch. So, basically, it means that your child, usually a a child, a baby or a child, but can sometimes be, it can happen to older kids or even adults. Um, The fairies take the human and they leave a fairy baby in exchange. And um, you have to figure it out right away, or you'll never get your original. Basically, they're, they're kidnappers. This is the kidnappers of the fairy kingdom. And there's a lot of superstition around changelings and the way that it's it's actually it's fascinating because one of the ways that you make sure that a fairy doesn't enter the house during childbirth, um, you have to you have to lock all the little cupboards. And make sure all the things are sealed tight, and no one comes in and out of the room, and there are all these these um, prep there's all these preparations that you make, but when you look at it from a historical and medical point of view, you realize that there's also a hermetic sealing that is taking place that is allowing that is kind of preventing infection and too much cross contamination, so you see something like how to prepare for childbirth um, and prevent the fairies from stealing your child, and you can actually see that it may have, um, it's another way that people were able to protect themselves. So whatever the belief was, it's still, you know, 20 people didn't come in and out with unwashed hands while somebody was giving birth. So um, there's always there's always another twist with a lot of these stories.
0: Let's talk about uh, the spiritualist movement. Varla, I, you know, this is something that, um, that probably doesn't get enough attention, at least I don't think it does, particularly because of the fact that this was a, a unique time in history for women as well as for people who are interested in spiritualism. Let's talk, let's talk about it a little bit. Why is it significant, first of all, to everyone as a whole, but women specifically?
1: Yeah, great, great timing to talk about it during Women's History Month, too. (laughs) Um, So the spiritualist movement, just to give kind of the basics, the spiritualist movement does still exist today, sort of gave rise to what we might think of as the more modern uh, modern modern-day New Age movement. Um, There are people just that I don't get corrected, there are people who identify as spiritualists to this day and practice, um, spiritualism. But the spiritualist movement itself was really most popular, in particular in the United States between, um, it was also, there was, The spiritualist movement took place in Canada and um, parts of Europe and the U.K. as well, but most of my research revolves around the spiritualist movement in the United States from roughly 1840 to about the 1930s when it kind of started to peter out. Um, Not surprisingly, it really reached its its peak post-Civil War. Um, And the spiritualist movement is the belief that not only can we make contact with the dead, but that the dead have specific messages and teachings for the living. And that by contacting the dead, usually through a medium, we can sort of evolve our own our own spirits is, is kind of the idea. So to set the backdrop, you can think of, you know, 1840s to 1930s to sort of have the Victorian into the Edwardian era. Um, when it's really at its peak. And post-Civil War, and that's important because the Civil War, it left behind a high body count, and it left many, many people in mourning. It left a lot of people not knowing what had happened to their loved ones or finding out what had happened to them months, or sometimes years later. Um, bodies, not necessarily being buried in their home cemeteries, things that really uh, haunted people. And so, out of a large amount of grief it comes a, a desire to find answers. The spiritualist movement and the idea that the dead could actually talk back to us really started to take off after that. You had even Mary Todd Lincoln was. Doing uh, seances and using using the Ouija board and and talking with the medium in the White House, and so you had this sort of figurehead practicing um, you know a form of spiritualism. A uh, couple of interesting things about the spiritualist movement it was not in conflict with Christianity. Now there were there were you know people on on extreme ends, but most of the people who practiced spiritualism were also you know, stalwart Christians who went to church on Sunday. It wasn't a <clears throat> you believe in your evil kind of thing. It was really kind of more of an evolution of a different way of looking at life after death and um, experimenting with that. So when we talk about parlor games or the paranormal parlor, we're we're talking about the idea that this, I that contacting the dead, having a seance, using a Ouija board or a spirit board or a medium in some fashion, became uh, very common and, in fact, rather popular, especially among the middle to upper class, people who had parlors where they could entertain. So it, it kind of has some uh, uniqueness within that. So it's significant for kind of everyone in in those regards and and... Out of that movement. Also, just for providence, the Ouija board was copyrighted by the Parker Brothers in the, or trademarks. By the Parker brothers in the 1920s, so they kind of came in not at the absolute end of the the, the spiritualist movement, but they kind of sort of moved in. So for when most of us think of a Ouija board, we're actually thinking of the Parker brothers Ouija board, and they they swooped in and um, copyrighted that um, and kept it popul- very popular. But around that time, it also started being considered. I mean, you know, some people were proved to be charlatans. Um, you had the advent of some additional technology and better forms of communication, so everything wasn't quite as mystifying. And you had people like Houdini who were, you know, showing that, that you could do, that a, a lot of these things were, were tricks. And Houdini was not really a um, fan of the spiritualist movement because he wanted to sort of show that people were being taken advantage of by... Um, you know, pretending that you could go into trance and things like that. And that, you know, he he was a, a kind of, I wouldn't say he's responsible for the end of the spiritualist movement, but he certainly helped contribute to the um, end of its its popularity. It kind of became more jokey at that point, and that was a, around the 1930s.
0: When, with the exception of maybe the aftermath of the Civil War, which was just an, a very unique time in our history spiritually because as you said so many people everybody was touched by death and and you have to remember families at that time may have seen a a son or all their sons or sons and fathers leave the home and for years you know get get sporadic mail from them but then just not he- then just suddenly stop hearing from them and having no idea what happened to them and and at home they didn't have pictures it's not like today they may have had one family portrait that they were lucky enough to get along the way but that was rare in itself so you didn't even have anything to remember these people by so that really f- threw gasoline onto the spiritualist movement fire but i want to move away from that for a second Apart from that time, was, were the seances and this effort seen by most people that participated in it as a form of entertainment, or were they serious about trying to contact the other side?
1: So in the earlier days of the spiritualist movement, sort of actually pre-Civil War, especially the 1840s and the 1850s, that was such a lively time in American history for things that were changing. And what's interesting is that you will find historically um, a lot of people who were involved in the spiritualist movement were also involved in the suffragist movement and were abolitionists. So they were rather forward-thinking, and as you know, thinking about slavery, thinking about uh, women's rights, and you, you even have some examples of a very well-to-do, there's a very well-to-do couple named Amy and Isaac Post who hosted Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass in their salons, where they would have these discussions about um, important matters, uh, a, a, you know, a person's place in the world and what rights they had. And they would also host—they also hosted the Fox Sisters and other spiritualists who came through who were, um, you know, a different form of enlightenment. So prior to even the Civil War, you had this—the the, sort of—I would—I look at it as, as, you know, the foundation and, the, and certainly— more more serious aspect of the spiritualist movement. And then as we kind of got into that, the nation of grieving, it really took off um, and created a more of a need for it. And out of that need, of course, came a variety of things. You also have, you know, going from people were building the railroads. And so there was a new form of transportation that was taking you from coast to coast. Um, things like... The telegraph and um, electricity, these were all things that were kind of taking place during this time that were really revolutionary um, when you think of the way that people were living, you know, in 1840 versus how they were living by the 1930s. So much changed during that period of time.
0: Yeah, amazing transformations during that time. Let's talk about the Fox sisters because they're often credited with kind of uh, jump-starting, if not starting, this spiritualist movement. Where, what's their role in all of this?
1: So the Fox Sisters can be credited with uh, both <laughs> bringing the spiritualist movement into popularity and also kind of ruining it, <laughs> for, for, <laughs> um, for what it's worth. So if you're not familiar with um, the town of Lilydale, which, which is in New York, that was an entire community that was formed um, for uh, the purpose of being a spiritualist community and conducting seances. It still they still conduct seances to this day, um, and it's a historic community. The Fox Sisters were three sisters that um, they were all sort of. Uh, to, to just just to touch on kind of, and we, and we can get more into this, but if you can imagine this era all of these things were taking place people were talking about should women should women vote should should you know should we end slavery people were talking about these things and people were struggling and they were struggling to survive and they were struggling to get out and they were struggling you know in a in a lot of roles and women in particular um you know really didn't have a lot of choices they maybe had more choices than they had 50 years before that but in order to do anything that wasn't what your husband wanted you to do or have any kind of career or um, define yourself as a person in any way it, it was it you either had to completely rebel and go the opposite and maybe become, you know, you could become a a prostitute or you could perform on stage or you could, you know, live a life of servitude and you'd be a maid or a nanny. Um, And often you did that just until you got married and then you, you were your husband's wife. So there were a lot of confines within this society. Um, Spiritualism it gave women another role as writers, as performers, as household names, as mediums that they didn't necessarily have before within the sort of structure of this Victorian society. So, so back to the Fox sisters, you have three sisters: um, uh, Leah, Kate, and Margaret. And they are, um, I believe Leah, is she the oldest? I think she was the manager. Um, so Leah, Kate, and Margaret were the, the Fox sisters. And Leah and, or excuse me, Margaret and Kate um, were the younger two. And at a, at a pretty young age, they started uh, channeling. They started Contacting spirits. First, it was just sort of little parlor games they played at home, and then eventually they kind of took their show. On the road, um, they were most known for a doing what's called. Uh, you could do table tilting or table lifting, which is where you would levitate the table. Everybody would sit around the table and they put their hands on the table. And, you know, you you ask a question like, "If any is anybody here?" And the other thing they were really known for was was rapping. So you know, knock once or knock twice. Is, is anybody in this room? And you'd here? Right. So. Right. The they put on a, they they were lovely young women and they made a lot of money touring the United States. As I had mentioned before, they they were hosted in many a well-to-do salon. They were put up in lovely homes and hotels, and they traveled around on invitation and were paid to go into trance and kind of make contact. And Leah was the older sister, and she was actually married, and she was the manager of the others um one of the sisters was also married and had a child and so supposedly and, you know a lot of this is just kind of it's always hard when you look at especially like historical articles and how they how they uh, described the because you know, i read a few old newspaper clippings and things about the fox sisters and there's so much um like Bias against them, and a lot of them, it's hard. It's hard to know the full and real story. Um, but basically, the short story is that the younger two, who were the main performers, drank a lot, and so they were living the life. You know, traveling around the country and um, going into trance and amazing people, and really having this sort of respectable career. And um, but they're. The one sister I think it was Kate had a child, and she was kind of kind of getting out of control. And so Leah, the manager, said, "You're getting out of control. I think I should take your son, or something like that." This is the this is the story, and the so she gets really really mad that her sister is accusing her of being out of control, and she goes to a reporter, and for like fifteen hundred bucks, she sells them all out, and she says, "We've been making it up all along. This is how we did it." And meanwhile, at this time, you oh, you did have Houdini, um, who was saying, uh, and other kind of um, spiritualists who were saying, hey, we think they might be faking it, and um, kind of pointing out, okay, okay you've, got, you've got these tricks and things like that. So she, she sells them out. The reporter runs the story. She tries to retract it. It's too late. And then, meanwhile, a cousin comes along who's been working on the show and says, yeah, it's all totally fake. And the Fox sisters end up, essentially, the two younger sisters die, you know, penniless, alcoholics, and the older sister sort of fades into history um, and kind of, you know, lives a, a nondescript life after that. But they both brought it to popularity and also kind of created so much controversy that after that people were much more um, skeptical and cautious with uh, who they threw their money at in terms of, you know, mediums and psychics.
0: <laughs> Did some people believe that the uh, the confession, if you will, was not genuine? What are your thoughts on yes.
1: that? Yeah yeah I had read that that was um it was coerced or also that like it's like so she tried to retract it this is but that could also be that she just tried to deny it and again this is where history is very blurry because you have um women who really weren't supposed to be doing this type of thing and really didn't have a say and they were up against you know a legal system and a a um uh, media that they had no say, in that was, you know, run by quite, I mean, back in the day, you had two different senators who would have their dueling papers, you know, so it was like they they weren't necessarily unbiased media. So you have all of these things that you kind of have to sift through to get any semblance of the truth. And yes, yeah, some people think that they, they were just basically it was a smear campaign, that none of the family was involved. Other people believe that she said it kind of out of desperation and then couldn't take it back, um, that another person sold them out. But in the end, once that kind of reputation was ruined and everybody you know felt the fool, they stopped going to them. They couldn't get bookings anymore, and they eventually you know, had sort of spent all their money.
0: Right. What about this story that uh, one of Mark... Twain's books was channeled through a Ouija board.
1: That's a great story. So around this time, you have the Fox sisters um, who were kind of fading out of popularity and probably more like the 18s. Let me, let me just look here in the book. Um, I feel like they kind of faded out of popularity probably in the early 1900s, maybe the late 1800s, when things really kind of came came to ruin. So, nonetheless, the spiritualist movement was rolling along. Now, Mark Twain died in 1910. In 1917, a book came out called Jack Perron, and the subtitle was is something like a novel written via the Ouija board by Mark Twain. Interestingly enough, that was the big mistake the publisher made, using Mark Twain's name. Hmm. But the story is that um, a woman named Emily Grant Hutchings, who actually had a friend named Pearl Koran, who we can, we can talk about Pearl Coran and, and her um, successful career channeling um, in a little bit. But Emily had um, a, uh, she lived in St. Louis, and she was attending actually a seance with with um, one of her friends, and the story is that Emily walked in, and the medium immediately kind of moved the spirit board, and it said, at last, she's here. Now, this entire story that I'm going to tell you is all the introduction to Jack Perron, and it's written by Emily Grant Hutchings herself. So this is her story. Her story is that from that point on, she was identified by the ghost of Samuel Clemens, as being the primary scribe on earth to retell uh, or to tell the novel that he never got a chance to write. The book came out in 1917. Twain died in 1910. They started work on this in about 1915 or so, and it took them over a year to put this manuscript together at length, and which they um, painstakingly dictated it, or so they say, from the Ouija board. There are these wonderful passages that describe the way that the Ouija board is fashioned into a typewriter to have parentheses and um, semicolons and things that you wouldn't otherwise find on a spirit board. And so um, Emily, her husband, whose name has been lost to history, or at least to, to my history, <laughs> um, Mr. Hutchings, and a medium, because that was usually very significant in the spiritualist movement. That there was usually like a conduit. The three of them sat down and they, they dictated this entire novel, which is a story about a young man in a small town who starts working for a publisher and apprenticing for this publisher. So it's got a kind of a twain-ish um, editor story within a story thing going on i'm not a huge twain scholar it certainly has it's twain um i don't think at that point since he was had already died it was quite famous i don't think his style was necessarily that hard to replicate so there's a lot of you know i enter into the story with some skepticism but the great thing is so she she writes this Story. She writes its introduction. She actually finds a publisher, and the publisher is a guy named Mitchell Kennerly, who is a pretty well-known rare book dealer. And he decides to publish it. So he publishes it in 1917. And as I mentioned, the subtitle mentioned Mark Twain by name. The novel goes out. It hits the shelves, and the estate of Samuel Clemens and the publisher of Samuel Clemens, so Samuel Clemens's daughter and the publisher freak out, and they demand that the book is ripped from the stands, and they um, take it actually— the um, Emily's publisher fights back, and they go all the way to the Supreme Court, believe it or not. Oh, it goes wow. all the way to the Supreme Court. But what's on the—and t- it's funny, because there are newspaper headlines from— you know, like 1917, 1918, saying like you know, um, you know, Ouija novel goes to the Supreme Court. It's not up for debate whether or not it was channeled. What is what what they and they they win the lawsuit. The publisher Samuel Clemens's publisher wins the lawsuit. And the publisher, Mike um, Mitchell Kennerly, has to destroy it and pull it from the stands because they use the name Mark Twain, and Mark Twain was copyrighted and owned by the publisher. Had they just said uh, anything else, it would not have mattered. You know, even if they had sort of mentioned it in passing, but because they tried to use this copyrighted name, that's why it was overruled in court, and the whole thing was destroyed. And there are. I have never seen a physical copy. I have read it, and every copy that I have read I have found on the Gutenberg Library online, and it's a facsimile of the original book. So there is a book or two out there that made it, but for the most part it fell to, um, you know, lost history. Wow. And it's, it's very interesting because you have a woman who was of, you know, modest but, but fairly well-to-do means, um, who, when you start, so I started researching her, like, what was her story? There's actually some correspondence between her and Twain, um, in a series of letters. She attended, uh, something in San Francisco, a talk, and she was an aspiring journalist. And I think she wanted to be taken seriously. And this is me putting my own, like, if I were Emily in this, in this scene, um, I think she wanted to be taken seriously and she had tried to be taken seriously as a journalist. And then she kind of had this experience. I think she legitimately had the experience, but I also think that whether she painstakingly channeled that whole novel or not, man, she had a great idea just to even put that as the intro, just to even kind of throw that out there that that's, That's where it came from and to create this doubt and to create the idea that somebody famous, because that was another thing that was very popular in the spiritualist movement was going into trance and channeling someone really famous. Mm. So um, it's just a kind of an amazing story. And I've had multiple conversations with people who are big Twain scholars and they completely scoff at it. But I like to look at Emily and the kind of circumstances she was in and this sort of desire to break out of the routine that she had as a St. Louis housewife who was hosting salons and attending salons and make a name for herself and be taken seriously um, and one of the things that she was she had a number of rejection letters from various newspapers for her ideas, and she was a, a very decent writer. So it was a hard time to really um, make it as a writer in general. And we all know that it's always it's always tough for writers, but um, for a, a woman in you know 1910, 1915, a lot of women still were publishing under. Uh, male names because they were otherwise considered to be fluff or romance or or not taken seriously Um, so she wanted to be taken seriously and this was the way that she went
0: about it so when you say it was not up for debate whether or not she channeled the book does that mean in in regards to the Supreme Court that wasn't the issue being discussed or does it mean that you were completely you are completely convinced she actually did channel this book
1: Oh no! Oh no! I waver okay. almost daily when I when I think about it. I think about this book and this situation a lot. Actually, probably more than I should. But I, I put myself in, in all of the different points of view and um, read different perspectives. And uh, but uh, what, what I mean is that it wasn't the, the the Supreme Court was not trying to rule whether or not uh, Mark Twain you know, Mark Twain's ghost had made contact yeah, with Emily. Right. And some of the headlines tried to make it seem like that was what was up for debate, but the Supreme Court was not... And, you know, one of the headlines was Supreme Court rules on, um, you know, spiritualist seance credibility or something like that. But that's not really what they were doing. They weren't really ruling whether or not there was a ghost involved. Right. They were ruling... um about the copyright infringement, which is, you know, publishing law. So it was kind of sensationalized. But anyone who um, is a fan of Twain or a fan of the spiritualist movement or is just interested in the story in general, in my book I include her introduction because that that is just a wonderful, there are all these fantastic quotes about Twain. He has, you know, Twain has these, these quotes. And I say Twain in quotes. Right. But he has quotes like everybody. She says she says I'm trying to get your message, but I keep getting you know things are jarbled. And he said something like he's fighting. He you know he said everybody everybody here wants a scribe on Earth. So just paint this picture of, like, you know, all of these sort of spirits trying to get through to get their message across, which was really in line with the spiritualist movement, what the spiritualist movement was saying, which is that the dead have something to tell us and teach us.
0: We don't have a lot of time left, and there are a lot of names that we wanted to talk about. Uh, You wanted to talk about Pearl Koran, you want Leonora Piper, um, and others, Let's pick one that you think is, is important to end up this conversation on.
1: All right. Yeah, well, great. Well, we can just go right into Pearl because she connects with Emily. Um, Pearl Coran was um, sort of a late, uh, early 1900s, also in St. Louis. She had lived around various towns in, in the Midwest. And she was a bit older than Emily. I think she was 10 or 15 years older than her, but they were both kind of lived in the same area and were part of the same social circle. And it was Pearl, uh, it was actually Emily who brought Pearl to her first seance. At that first seance, um, not when Emily made contact with the medium, but when Pearl immediately uh, went into uh, trance um, at one of the first, uh, experience uh, at first uh, seances they had been to and she went with her friend Emily and uh, pearl dropped into trance and immediately began channeling a entity named patience worth a uh, she channeled novels she channeled several volumes of poetry and pearl actually made quite a name for herself at one point she was not pearl but Patience Worth, the entity was dubbed poet laureate for a while. Mm, wow. Um, and, and her poetry and her novels were thought to be very good. Now, what's interesting is that she began channeling in 1912. Now, if you look at Emily, Emily, her book came out in 1917. So sometimes I wonder if Pearl's success and her ability to really find success with patients' Worth, uh, Um sort of pushed Emily to the point of that slightly cheaper parlor trick of using Mark Twain's name. Um, Patients were, you know, she went on, she channeled, I think, like five novels, and then eventually she just kind of stopped and what would happen is that Pearl would go into complete trance and she would do automatic writing. And this was another tool in the spiritualist movement. Um, and for those of you who don't know this, the book of the book of the Law, Alistair Crowley's book of the Law, was written via automatic writing. He went into trance in a pyramid in uh, in, in, a, in Egypt and dropped into trance and channeled this, um, you know, the, these teachings that um, you know are still uh, revered today. So, automatic writing was something that kind of had a name but wasn't necessarily a new a new tool. And so she was a very interesting woman, a little bit of an older housewife, and reached quite a bit of success. Um, meanwhile, Emily kind of came along and didn't have quite as much success, but they were friends. And um, you can find uh, patience. Patience's worth is unique in that Pearl never tried to channel anyone else. She never tried to say it was her. She gave full credit to Patience, full, um, she didn't even say Patience was her pen name. It was, you know, this whole other entity that came through and had things to say. Um, and I think as a writer, I I can really attest to the many um, voices in your head. And there's something about trance that also happens when you are uh, creating something. And so there's an element of the muse and something very sort of, you know, ancient Greek about the way that she would go into trance, um, which all is in a line with what was popular um, in terms of the spiritualist movement and a lot of the metaphysical kind of teachings that were happening at the time. But what what I love about it is she was more or less an ordinary housewife, she wasn't following, you know. She wasn't a member of the Golden Dawn. She wasn't doing any kind of like secret rituals in the woods. She just this lady in a in a corset in the middle of St. Louis who dropped into trance and started channeling um, this uh, off world being. So, <laughs> wow, well, wasn't it
0: automatic? Wasn't it automatic writing? Just to, you reminded me of this. Wasn't it automatic writing that had almost had um, Houdini convinced that. Uh, his mother had been contacted.
1: Yes, yes. Um, there's there's a couple of stories about Houdini and automatic writing, and because what would happen is now I automatic writing. Now, some of the, maybe the channeling via the spirit board is a bit much, but with automatic writing, I myself have experimented with automatic writing, um, and it does it it, it takes quite a bit to be able to do it. Um, I've barely, rarely been able to get into a comfortable enough place where I can truly be unaware of what I'm writing. Usually I'm, you know, hyper aware. Uh, But I've been around people who have done automatic writing as well, and it can produce some pretty um, astonishing works. And now I don't know if that means something is, is making contact, or if someone is tapping into this sort of divine um, thought that we're all sharing and that, you know, is, is part of what makes it so powerful. So was the person who was doing the automatic writing just picking up what Houdini was laying out there? Right. Or, um, or were they actually making contact or were they making contact with something that was greater than a spirit and, you know, more uh, sort of a broader definition but um, it's pretty interesting. And what I also love about automatic writing is that really anyone can do it. You don't really need any special tool other than a pen and some paper, a lot of paper, and um, either someone you trust to move the paper when you get to the end of it. I mean, isn't that that great scene in Poltergeist where she's doing automatic writing? Right, right. Um, they look like kind of freaky. Uh, and you just... You, it's so hard to imagine being able to really relax enough to go into that trance, but if you're able to do it, I think that's one of the sort of psychic tools that almost anyone can use, whether they consider themselves a psychic or um, a medium in any way, because it, it really is tapping into your own subconscious. Wow! Oh. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's it's great That's stuff. Great. We we've left a lot of stuff on the table here that we were going to talk about. We just didn't have time <laughs> because it's also fascinating and it's really great stuff. But Varla, thank you again for being back with us tonight. Where can people get a hold of your books and uh, follow your work?
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's, been, it's always it goes by far too quickly. Yes, it does. Um, you can you can go to varlaventura.net, net, and I have links to all my books wherever you want to buy them. They're all in print. You can buy them from your local um, bookseller, or you can buy them on Amazon. Whatever you whatever you know you prefer. Just. Thank you for buying them.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 they're great. They're great. I've had a chance to uh, to read a couple of them that you sent along, which I appreciate. And we'll look forward to having you back because it's always a great time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It flies by. It's, it's just amazing how quickly it goes. And I know I give long answers, so.
0: Well, it's, uh, they're they're detailed and they're interesting. So uh, otherwise, I'd be cutting you off, and I don't do that. So so it works perfectly. Anyway, thanks for being here, and we'll we'll uh, we'll have you back real soon.